1: Welcome to New Books in Fantasy and Adventure, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This is your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the historical fantasy falcon series, beginning with The Falcon Flies Alone. Today, we'll be talking with A.L. Kless, the author of The Lost Puzzler. A.L. Kless enjoys a triple international career as a performing violinist teacher in a Buchmann Meta school of music, and an author of novels. Born in Israel, Eyal has traveled the world extensively, living several years in Dublin, London, Manchester, and Vienna, before returning to Tel Aviv. As an author, Eyal published his first novel, Rokas Violin, in Hebrew. The Lost Puzzler, published by HarperCollins Voyager, It's his first novel in English. Eyal's website is eyalclass.com, and he loves to hear from readers. His first name is E-Y-A-L, and his last name is K-L-E-S-S, and that's his website. Before I welcome him on the show, I'd like to share my review of his novel, a picaresque novel about a serious boy with special powers. The Lost Puzzler takes place in an impoverished, technologically backwards world. After the fall of the advanced Tarakan Empire, the remaining population struggles to get by on what remains of their technology. Others turn to rural existence, adhering to religious dogma, which condemns all those who still seek out the old technology. Children who spontaneously exhibit tattoos are linked to the fallen Tarakanian society, sought after by those who collect Tarakanian technology, and ostracized or killed by the religious rural faction. Two boys, born years apart, Both possess the markings which indicate special powers. 1. Rafik, flees death in his religiously conservative village only to be passed from hand to hand as various factions try to make use of his powers. Rafik possesses one of the most useful mutations, the ability to open the locks that guard caches of the lost Tarquinian technology. Those locks are made of intricate puzzles that can only be solved by a puzzler, someone who has the power to arrange symbols into patterns. The other tattooed young man, whose only mutation is the ability to see through materials, is a scribe in the Society of Historians. Decades later, he is tasked with finding out what happened to Rafik and why it changed the course of history for the worse. An elusive fighter and communications specialist, the alluring Vincha, knows most of Rafik's story, but our scribe must find a way to convince her to talk. Unfortunately, he's not the only one looking for Vincha. So let's go ahead and welcome AL. I'd like to welcome AL Kles onto the air today talking about his book. And uh how are you doing today, Al, or tonight I'm
0: rather? It's tonight in Israel, but thank you. It's great. Uh, thank you for inviting me and I'm really excited about answering your questions.
1: Okay, my pleasure. We'll jump right in. So, uh this book is about Rafik. He's a puzzler and his ability consists of unlocking puzzle boxes. Which guard Tarkanian technology. His talent evolves as he sees and dreams about walls of unfamiliar symbols. He must identify hidden commonalities among those symbols in order to form a pattern. Your other character, the young historian, only referred to by his nickname of Twinkle Eyes, who is piecing together the story of Rafik he has a puzzle as well. He needs to find out what happened to Rafik and why it affected the course of history. Would you say there are some similarities in the way they piece together information trying to discern patterns?
0: Um, it's amazing that, that that first question is really, um, I never thought about it like that. But when you ask me this, I, I kind of think this is a very logical way. I might have done it subconsciously. Mm-hmm. That basically, twinkle eyes, twinkle eyes is basically going through all this information. Some of it is false, so some of it is like false symbols, and it's trying to create a pattern in which to understand what happened, what happened to history, what happened to Rafiq, why, why did Armageddon happen, and in the meantime, with his learning about Rafiq and his abilities. So I would say that I guess that was just one of those. Themes um, that was running in my mind uh, consciously and subconsciously when I was writing.
1: Yeah, that's the fun of uh, reading authors' work, and sometimes seeing what seems to be happening in the background. It seems like both of the uh, characters, the young man and the boy, have strong analytical abilities that they apply. Uh, speaking about their age, Rafik is in his early teens for most of the story. Twinkle Eyes can't be that much older, although he's not a virgin anymore. <laughs> yes. the, the mutant historian, Twinkle Eyes, he was loved by his parents and he found a safe haven among the historians, while Rafik was exploited by a series of mercenary men. But how different are their lives actually? Has twinkle eyes been used as well?
0: Well, without, without putting much uh, like too many uh, secrets of this what happened in the story, um, I definitely think the twinkle eye has been used. Um, basically, both of them are working, uh, their lives are basically lives that have no power, they don't have any power on their own lives. I mean, even Twinkle Eyes, but in, in in the onset of the book, is uh, looking like, you know, like, knowing no, all very white guys, you know, walking around the city, knowing knowing where to do all, all his secrets, is basically, as the book progresses, as the novel progresses, he is discovered to be just a pawn, or basically, maybe maybe not a pawn, maybe more significant a piece on the board, but still, uh just another, another gaming instrument of this, the whole, uh, story that unfolds. So, uh, both him and of course Rafik, a 13 years old boy with very exceptional talents that's basically being, you know, uh, moved around and used in all this, all, all, all ways. So yes, there's a definitely a similarity between, uh, between both of them.
1: Right, they don't really, even though they're both powerful in their own ways, they don't have much agency. Well, the title of your work is The Lost Puzzler, and the title could be interpreted several ways. Has the puzzler been lost, or is he lost?
0: Well, definitely it starts with the fact that the puzzler is lost. But um, the story of Rafi, um. Put me to tell the story of Rafik. I had to go through um, two unconventional methods of trying to tell the story because, first of all, I'm 47, about to be 48, and when I wrote this, even if, when I started when I was 20 in my 20s, to go into the eyes of a child, a 13 years old boy, and see how he relates to a very alien world. Um, it was very difficult for uh, for me in the beginning, and it, it uh, I made several mistakes which I had le- later to edit out or edit in. Uh, but then again, as you, as the reader, basically learns about Rafiq and learn about his abilities and start to relate to him and what this child is is going through uh in with an eyes of a grown up that was supposed to, the, the book was never supposed to be a YA uh, I didn't go for younger readers I went for for older mature readers um but then in around around the last part of this book um as he becomes a full puzzler a full puzzler is kind of an alien in the forms of how he relates to the world and so more and more this character which we learn to relate to he started to distance them itself from the reader. And the reader knows less and less of what we're thinking. thinking. So, in some ways, we're also losing the puzzler as we read him.
1: Yes, in some ways, he loses almost loses his humanity or accessibility. He seems like he isn't as involved with people anymore um, as his story progresses because the puzzles begin to fascinate him so much.
0: Exactly, and he sees the world in a different way. And the way I imagine it is that puzzles um, when they are absolutely in the highest of their ability, don't see the world the way other humans, be, human beings, see it. So it was, it was, it was impossible to to describe. But I could only slowly move him back a little bit and put more other characters to the fore. So in, a, in some ways, he's lost to us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in the, in Book so, but both both the answer for both of uh, the short answers is yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so the puzzler is almost a bit. One could almost compare a puzzler to a genius, and that the mental processes are so different that a gulf opens up between a puzzler and just humans that drink and get into relationships and stuff. Yes,
0: it's like. Like when I I don't know the movie Amadeus, I'm a musician mm-hmm. and I really it really, really I saw when I was young and and the way that that Amadeus was portrayed by Stanley this manic laugh that comes out of this, like oh, this kind of laugh that comes out of nowhere and it's exactly to put him in here is the here's a character you don't know why he's laughing like that and he's just a way of him portraying a a a, a, a person who's who's so such a genius that he's almost detached from humanity through that laugh so i was trying to kind of see how the more he progresses and the more he becomes more aware of what has happened the, the less we are aware of him and i i mean if a 22nd century persona would have materialized in the in the 19th century i, I mean how would other people perceive he, him or her uh, in their in their abilities they might look at him or her as like, as a magician or you know or as a spellcaster or some genius and and it's just the way that this distance, distance is very hard to um, to bridge. And so this way, Rafik starts very close to the reader and then slowly distances himself away from humanity and from the reader.
1: Yes, because he's being drawn to towards an advanced civilization and being drawn into the secrets of an advanced civilization. So he starts off from a village, uh, a very kind of a conventional village or a conservative village, we could say prayer is a part of daily life. Women have strictly defined roles. Mutant children who manifest tattoos, as Rafik does, are exiled or even killed. Do you find that religion can be an oppressive force?
0: Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, this has nothing to do with belief or individual belief or whatever Whatever people should believe in, um, religion, um, when it becomes like a a collective force can, can become, can be violent and oppressive. It's going to also do good things, but in history, as history proved, it went both ways. So, um, yes, I, I mean, I had to be, I wanted to be, um, a little bit careful when it came to 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 portraying religion mm-hmm. uh, so because the name Rafiq uh, refers to Middle Eastern uh, or, or Arabic origins and then but I've basically made a Judeo-Muslim new religion out of out of and basically made it all up and not and tried to kind of stay neutral and not being portrayed as somebody who's saying something about certain religions so I just made up a Judo-Muslim or maybe Christian as well, religion together, mashed it all up together, and, and, and basically it's not about the religion itself, it's about what the people in the village believed that the tattoos were.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
0: and that it, that's how this whole book starts.
1: We could say it's kind of just a Old Testament type religion, because... After all, those religions all do have a common root. Absolutely, yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, you're right. Old Testament kind of religion, absolutely. (laughs) But the way that they're related to tattoos has nothing to do with religion, it has to do more with how they, as a society, uh, uh, see the the, the marked ones. And and as it goes through the world, there are other societies, some of them not religion, who relate to the tattoos in different ways. Some of them Adore them or use them, and other other fear them and 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 uh, hate them. So it's really nothing about religion; it's really more about uh, just how we perceive the the person who is different than us.
1: Well, and that brings us to the Salvationists, who are part of another cultural group. That sounds like a religious name, but they don't ever talk about religion. I was thinking. They might more accurately be called the salvagenists, although there is no such word. Their lives revolve around the dangerous work of salvaging Tarkanian technology. They're a hard drinking and violent lot. But would you say also that they're looking for salvation in their own way?
0: Well, first of all, I must say that I wish I would have thought about that word <laughs> before as I was writing, because that's a really good uh, salvationist. You know, I, I mean, I just thought about, uh, you know, solving something, and then salvationists just came naturally to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine them as the ultimate mercenaries, and the people that basically, some of them are doing things to survive, some are doing this this for greed, but there's also characters who are doing this for, for more philosophical reasons, and there are at least two characters there who are salvationists uh one of them uh, is a commander another one is a kind of a uh, a person who uh, who who teaches um puzzles to Rafik and they both look at what they do or did as uh, in a more philosophical way they are trying to basically better humankind bring humankind back from where it fell after uh, kind of a, a world uh, disaster and uh the catastrophe or uh, then they're trying to bring it back. Well, and so for them to go to, go to those bunkers and, and, and salvage all this technology is more than just money. It's about, and so you can say that, that some of them are looking for salvation and some of them are just looking for loot.
1: I think it's uh, interesting to reflect on there are, much like our own world, there are people who look for salvation in the divine in that they are looking for something that's inexplicable, that that can't be explained, that has to be experienced through faith alone. And there are other people who look for salvation in science and technology because they really believe that those things can improve life for all of mankind.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So. Um in some ways they are they are also each and every one of them is looking for a salvation the way you look at it. But uh, not all of them are aware that they're looking for it.
1: Well that makes for an interesting story, of course. <laughs> Thanks. So Rafik is befriended by one of the salvationists, a woman called Vincha, who learns his story and she's one of our narrators. At one point, Vincha finds Rafik as he's preparing to pray. She shares what she does instead of praying when she finds a quiet place. She likes to listen to music she found through her work as a salvationist. Later, the music is revealed to be Beethoven's, and you're a professional violinist. Is listening to music your form of communion with the divine?
0: Um, <laughs> I, I'm an atheist Jew, but I always say to... <laughs> To everybody who listens, that if if there's something that shakes my non-belief, beliefs are you know Bach and Mozart and Beethoven, because I I do believe that if aliens just landed right now and said, show us what what humanity has has achieved, um, not just in this source of technology, because you know they'll have better technology than us. They just landed on Earth, but what did you what did you do? Mm-hmm. What did you manage yourself? And I would say Beethoven's music, uh, is definitely, uh, something I would show as, as where, where we can, where we went. And, um, so yes, I think that, that, that sometimes, um, some kind of genius, what well, that as as it manifests itself in music, which is the only art form which really penetrates the body with sound waves, mm-hmm. um, is a, yeah. It, yeah, and affects us. It affects us. It physically affects us. Uh, good sounds physically affect us and also, of course, bad sounds physically affect us every day. We are surrounded by terrible noise most of our, most of our daily life. And suddenly you can just sit back and just listen to, to really divine music. I think it's, um, it's one of those moments in the, in, in, in my life that I find solace and uh, quiet
1: Well, as an atheist Jew, you could just say that music stirs you profoundly. And we'll leave it like that. Okay. So uh, in your book, we have trolls. And a specific example of the trolls are the comms. Uh, Those are people with augmented body parts, which enable them to fight better. Or in the case of comms, they receive communications through wires. Those people play a large role in your book, and some of them are presented sympathetically. However, the two heroes of your book, Rafik and Twinkle Eyes, have natural mutations. They don't need augmentations. Uh, can you comment on that?
0: Absolutely. Um, first of all, in regards to Puzzler uh, versus other mutants, because there are other mut- mutants, other kinds of trolls, some of them are stronger or faster or uh, can lift things or shoot better. And, you know, of course, communication controls as well. Uh, each of them with their own unique abilities, but buzzers are the only ones which are natural. They don't attach anything to their bodies. That's what they, they That's the only thing they do. And there is a good explanation why in the book, I don't want to give a spoiler, but there's, there is an absolute explanation why that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think basically, uh, uh, there is a price to pay, and we'll talk about it maybe a little later. It's a price. It was a price to uh, to pay for attaching tarakan technology to the body, because the body rejects an alien, an alien device in the in the body. And so they are in some ways pure. I mean, even even uh, Twinkle Eyes, who has the ability to see, he does, He did not attach. He can, but he did not attach other devices to his eyes. He just uses them in a natural way because he was just an historian. He what well, just to see, He could just see in the dark, and that was fine for him. He didn't search for anything more. But other other trolls, other people who are mutants who are trying to better their um, better themselves and have, have went and started attaching alien technology to their bodies. Some of it so much so that it became grotesque. So in some ways, yes. For me, Rafik is still pure. The puzzles are the, the pure ones, the ones who see the talent and they're not and just work with the talents. And, and everybody else are basically maybe a little bit more greedy to become more powerful. They, they join the race to become just better and stronger and powerful. And so they have to also pay a price.
1: Oh, so I think that just answers part of the next question because the segue into that was uh, that trolls do suffer pain and illness from their use of artificial appendages. Uh, In fact, they have to take skint. That's a sought-after drug made from the secretions of their enemies, who are lizard-like beings that attack Salvationist crews. Uh, By the way, I was wondering if you knew that there really is a a psychoactive amphibian compound that can be taken, although I don't know anyone who's ever taken it. The buffo toad is actually the source. Oh, I
0: know somebody who took it.
1: <laughs> you do? Okay.
0: Yeah. And that's a long story, maybe not for for, uh, for this moment, but um, yes, I mean, that, you, you, you hit the nail right in the head. I mean, <laughs> that was my idea. Yeah. I knew that the toad totally exists. I knew that this can happen. You know, some people actually... Can okay, do it, do it, go do, do this um and basically, um I just transferred that to the book because I thought in some ways, this also represents the true uh, barbarism when cannibalism is, is and, and eating your enemy mm-hmm. is, is you know is where how how low does humanity has humanity fallen, and this for me was a very important symbol to put in the book that this is how this is how far we went
1: yeah that they're actually grinding up their enemies just like a new guinea tribe might be eating the brain of the smart chieftain that stood up to them Uh, it does seem i mean some of the trolls are sympathetic but as you said uh some of them are somewhat grotesque, too, because they attach so many things to themselves that they look imbalanced, and it's such a painful process. And so now taking your previous comment into account, I understand uh, why you made it be a painful process, because you feel that the trolls are just after power, and they're greedy, for that power, and so they continue to attach uh, appendages and try to be bigger. Is that right? Then,
0: well, the the, the um, there is a very. I don't want to put too many spoilers out. There is a mm-hmm. when I wrote, I was really concerned about about. Trying to give answers to any questions I raise, and most of it I try to close in the book. So one time you finish the novel, you understand what happened, you understand why why skint is, you understand mm-hmm. why people are. And I I think that the, the the whole idea of people attaching this device to themselves in the onset was not maybe the original plan of why those instruments are there or why why the tattoos appeared. Uh, but this is somehow evolution when when you know when you just. They just started doing it. And then when their body started rejecting it, they found a way around it, which was skins. So this is, this is for me, the genius of, you know, sometimes you see like animals that live off each other, like, you know, this, this, um, um, this, this kind of, uh, uh a, 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 a bug that lives in the brain of, the, of, of of a creature, and makes of the rat, it makes him uh, more courageous. So it's eaten by the cat, and then the cat gets this, and then the mm-hmm. cat helps it. I mean, there's there's a real one like that. And then he had, he he puts it out in his droppings, and then the mouse eats the dropping, and he gets the bug. back, I mean, this is an incredible. How does a creature evolve? How did that happen? So these kind of things, mm-hmm. like the, the amazing. um, uh, sometimes the, the, the amazing way that, that creatures live side by side the symbiotic way that they live with each other. This is what I thought about when I thought about um, attaching items to our body and, and what is the price that could be that needs to be paid for it.
1: Yeah, those life cycles like fungi and parasites have those, which are get very involved and go through several different hosts in order for the life cycle to continue, and exactly things like malaria or schistosomiasis.
0: So the
1: Torkanian cities uh, began with trade guilds, and uh, the Torkanian cities have been inhabited again with new trade guilds, the trade guilds employ their own Salvationist crews to seek out lost treasure. Then some trade guilds become stronger than others and continue to gain power. So, as I mentioned, we eventually learn that the Torcanians themselves began as a trade guild. And what is the determining factor in a guild suppressing all the other ones?
0: Um, take uh, the word guild and transfer it to the word company and you know um, the involvement of companies into super companies so we think about Google and facebook and uh, Microsoft and all you know all the these it's it's basically again like human involvement companies evolve like this and on the way many of them die or fall or disappear and but those who survive are very, very strong and, and, and could really now influence the entire course of human history. So, um, I think it's in our blood to not just trade, but also to form together strong uh, societies. And there is almost uh, nothing stronger and more natural to us than a certain tribe. Our brain is until today, um, is basically built for us to know between 100 and 120 people. That's, mm-hmm. that's where, that's, that's according to, you know, research. So basically, this is the, this is as big as our tribe should be. And that's, mean, that's a company. 100 and 120 people, that's basically the people in the building of your company, or basically the the people, maybe a, a minor company spread around, and you talk to, to them on uh, on Skype. Um, which means for me, that will be the normal the normal way of people to get back together. If suddenly there are no states and the planet has only five percent of the population that is now, so it's basically empty. You will form around people that you can relate to and remember and have strong bonds with, and then once that tribe is being formed, it's your tribe against other tribes. Nations happen through with hundreds of years, but basically, that is a very unnatural form for us to live in.
1: Aren't you and talking so, about the work of the famous Israeli philosopher? I can never pronounce his name. Do you know who I mean? Chomsky. you
0: uh, are talking about Chomsky.
1: Yeah, uh, no, not Chomsky, but uh, this this entire uh, *Sapiens* the book *Sapiens*, I believe, ah. discusses that. Is.
0: Yeah, and uh, yes, absolutely, and he uh, his name escapes me as well. But yes, I mean, I learned that from that. I learned that uh, after I finished the book but mm-hmm. it's just, it just showed me that my instincts about what, what would happen, a lot of the time I would sit down and try to be as realistic as I can be with the knowledge that I have. What would happen if suddenly you are alone in the world? You have 5% of the people in the world left, and most of them are in rural states. Like most, All the cities are destroyed. And so if you're a survivor in a rural place, who do you relate to and what do you do to survive? And how now move forward four generations, not just on the day it happens, move forward four generations, 60, 70, 80, 100 years. Do you think there will still be countries? I don't I think country, I don't think so. I think people will go back to living in tribes and if there is a something bigger is formed like a city, then they will still form guilds. So they could feel naturally related to each other.
1: Mm -hmm. So that size between 100 and 120 is the natural size for humans. Actually, what I was getting at in that question now, and I'll tell you because you addressed it in a specific paragraph in your book, and it's not a spoiler, but the determining factor, why one guild would get better than all the other guilds and get power, you wrote, is... That guild finding a special technology, and you gave the example of the crossbow, and that just uh, resonated for me.
0: Yes, I mean that—that that for me was not just a guild. That—that—that that, that was nation building. I mean, mm-hmm. you had a nation, you had empire, and then you know somebody, somebody that you know finds out like something which is technologically better than you, actually. like like spears with, with, you know, better spears or, or, uh, uh, you know, cavalry and and then suddenly you're destroyed. You're dust and they they live as an empire until somebody else finds something which is better. So, um, technologically, evolvement has all the time been just completely uh, drawn from human-kind need to evolve and But it's the need for humankind to evolve. A lot of it has been to better themselves from others. Mm -hmm. So the the use of technology itself, many of the times, has been has been bad or just not, or the way we see it as bad. If we if we look at it from a moral point of view.
1: Right, right. Well, uh, you did some very intricate world building, and just to finish up our conversation today. A uh, part of your world building was creating a special vocabulary, such as trolls. Uh, can you explain why you chose the word "rust" as a curse word? Rust, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> I, I, I mean, choosing a language in this situation where you think the world has been destroyed, and you know, four four generations later, how do they speak? I mean, I could have chosen that they spoke in uh, in, in Shakespearean in English and mm-hmm. somehow made it. Use for it. But I thought that at least, I would think that there will be many, many language that, like, languages or parts of the same country that speaks, let's say, English, that will speak different dialects. And because I'm starting this from a city that is based on metal, people are attaching metal, metal uh, augmentations to themselves. What is the worst thing that will happen to you if you attach uh, something from metal is that it will rust? And so, you know, many of my cur- curses um, involve, uh, uh, you know, uh, rust or, uh, you know, don't 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 uh, snap my wires or, you know, I don't give a, a silver wire. Which mm-hmm. I thought it was one of the it was one of the funnest things to do is is to to think about curse words in this which we would just not be in the normal curse words which would just was just too easy. I could have just basically used the words we use today, mm-hmm. but I. Would be so much fun to just invent just a little different. Uh, and, and it's amazing how my better readers immediately comment that they get it, that it, that it sounds like a curse, you know, go rust in a corner. Yeah, that right. sounds like, <laughs> that sounds like a curse. It's not exactly a curse, but it absolutely sounds like it has bad intentions immediately. So, um, um, and I got even more imaginative. Um, about the curses with uh, in the sequel. I got even, I went, I went a little bit further, um, which was a lot of fun.
1: Rust has that, it, it's four letters and it's got that kind of hard sound to it, like the other curse word that you use in a book, which we're not going to say on air, which is a common curse word, but Rust, it, yes, it sounds very fitting. Now, you just mentioned the sequel, so I guess you've been working on that. Tell us. Uh, where things are at with the sequel
0: I am so excited about oh. the puzzles war. I'm so excited about it because it took me 25 years to write the first book from the when from beginning to when I when it was published mm-hmm. and it four countries and seven computers and it was lost and then it was found and I never dared I didn't dare I, and even when I was writing it in them and I got an agent and suddenly uh, suddenly things were happening I thought wow you know I just that's it. I just wrote one book, and then my agent went back and said, um, it, "It's a two-book deal. They want a second book immediately." And I went, "Of course!" <laughs> <laughs> By the contract, and then I went like, "Oh my god! I've got to write another book." And the first book just defined where I went. I mean, the first book invented a world, but the second book had to had to work within the boundaries. That just invent another world. I had to deal with the world and the characters that I've created, and so for a while I thought, oh, I really like the first book, and I'll, I'll hammer a mediocre work. I, I really did. I just said, okay, I'll just do what I can, and it will be mediocre, then it's fine. And the, it turned out that the second book is, in my opinion, better than the first.
1: So you're and, very pleased.
0: I'm so pleased. And the one thing which is very, it's different makes it very different and maybe more interesting is that the first book had only characters within the timeline of, of the 15 years. So they're all in the same world. In the second book, there are also two characters that come from the 24th century. Not by but um but they are two characters that know how it was before mm-hmm. and they see the world as it is now. And so they relate to the world like oh you know in 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 the old in in the old world or the new world I could grow my own own organs I mm. could just grow if I wanted to but now I had to harvest the liver from a human being if I wanted to survive so I mean that's a, that's that's something that's a character that comes from the 24th century relating and I I had a lot of fun writing it and. Um, I'm really excited, and I hope that people who liked the first book will be delighted with the second one. So, yeah.
1: Do you have a publication date for the second one yet?
0: Yes. Uh, The second one is coming out in the UK on the 23rd of January and the US on the 28th of January 2020.
1: Okay. So everyone can be looking for that, and uh, they can visit your website for more information and updates, too.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I love to hear from people who read the book, and I read all the critics, the good ones and the not so good ones, and I learn from everything that I that I read because uh, that's the, the one thing which I love. which I take with me for music because when you play music, you learn to listen to criticism of others all your life, and so I I, I just I just read what people think, and some of you know the, I got some really warm reviews and I got a few people who didn't like it. And I read that as well. and learned from that as well. So, uh, so everybody are welcome to write me their opinions about the book and I hope they enjoy it at least as much as I enjoyed writing it.
1: Well, thanks so much for joining us on the show today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to us today on new books, network, fantasy and adventure channel. I've been talking to Al Kless about his first novel in English, *The Lost Puzzler*. To find out more about Al, you can visit his website and sign up to receive updates. His website is his name, Al Kless. That's spelled E Y A L K L E S S dot com. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthews author of the Historical Fantasy Falcon series, which begins with The Falcon Flies Alone. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more. At Gabrielle Author. My name is spelled G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E. Thanks for joining us and see you next month.